The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Passage is from 2 Timothy verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank Thanks, you, man. We're going to be talking about the church, but I think what you just said and what we just witnessed is better than anything anyone could ever say. What a beautiful thing that was. Thanks, man. Hey, good morning. I'm Billy. I'm not Russ, but it's good to be here, and it's good to see y'all. It's, it's the pandemic, but today is a good day because football is back. That's right. Professional sports, professional soccer is back. It's nice, too. And another thing is that we get to come to church, and there's a lot of churches that don't get to do this. That's been the hardest thing for me, or at least one of the hardest things about the pandemic, is not being able to come and worship together. I, I love coming to church. I always have. I love it. I, I, my father was an Episcopal priest. And as a kid, I would go to these, this cathedral and we would worship there. And as this sort of young redheaded terror, I knew every like back hallway that could get me from behind the altar into the reception room. And we had a lot of receptions. You know where the, the, the women of the church would make those little triangular sandwiches? Does anyone remember this? Where they had the mysterious meat spread in the middle, but were awesome. And those punch bowls with like the rainbow punch with the sherbet in the middle. God is sitting on the throne of grace drinking rainbow punch. I am convinced there are two truths in this world. The gospel of Jesus and that every church reception hall smells the same. It's true. I can smell it now. I'm telling you that story because I bet for y'all, those that grew up in the church at least, that if I that when I'm describing that, you're either thinking back to one of the things that you remember from where you went to church, or if I asked you to, you could probably smell that room. Uh, maybe that will, but this room will become that for you one day. Because I'm doing that for some people, that's a huge blessing, and for some people, that's a painful thing. And some people, it's all things in the middle. But the thing that we we see when we do that is this: is that the church is this ecosystem that affects us deeply. It does. And it's not just because it's this cultural footprint that we all sort of have done life in, though that's true. It's got this spiritual gravity to it, doesn't it? In fact, I go as far to say that if you're a Christian or if you're going to consider and walk the road of considering who Jesus is, There's no way to walk that road without it walking right through the front door of the church or encountering it in some way that you have to consider it in some way. And when I say church, I don't mean universal church like body of Christ, all the believers from the beginning of time until God rolls up the scroll. I mean the local church, Christ Pres, Cool Springs, Embassy Suite Campus, where salvation is free and so is the continental breakfast. The local church. 
it's, uh, it's this thing that we have to encounter when we consider Jesus. Uh, you can love it. You can reject it. You can run from it. You can embrace it. But you can't be indifferent to it. You got to consider it. And my question about that is like, does it really matter? Because we know it matters, but does it matter? Like in a significant way. Is that just a product of the fact that we live in Nashville and there's 10,000 churches on every corner? And if it does matter, why? So the next six weeks, as Russ said, we're doing this series. And we're, we're going to be talking about the local church, what it means, does it matter, why it matters, how we enter into it, how we think about it, what God thinks about it. And we're going to be doing that by looking at a book in Scripture, uh, 2 Timothy. And this is an awesome book. It, 2 Timothy is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy. And this is the second letter he wrote to him. And uh, it's the second time this, this letter, a letter to Timothy appears in Scripture. And when we ask the question, uh, does church matter? It's going to help us uh, to see the context that Paul was writing into. And what the context he was writing from. And the first verse we read today... We were only read two verses, so it was a very tight passage. It starts out in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So when you read Scripture or when you, anyone talks about someone in Scripture and you hear the word apostle, that's something, a word that we kind of brush over a little bit. But here's what, it, it doesn't mean that this person was just an evangelist, like some might use that term today in some traditions. It also doesn't mean, an apostle doesn't mean they were just a disciple, though they certainly were, a lot of them were disciples, most of them were disciples when Jesus was walking the earth. And uh, the word apostle, it was actually a title. It was a, it was a job name. And uh, it was a specific office that was held at a specific time by specific people. There were only 12 of them, and when they passed away, no one stepped in to fill that role. So the apostles, they were men that were handpicked by Jesus. It says, uh, as Paul wrote here, he said, uh, he's an apostle. Why? By the will of God. And they were chosen to play this unique role. Uh, the Holy Spirit moved through them in a unique way. They gave them authority over the early church. So what they said went they, uh, the Holy Spirit moved through them and they did these powerful miracles. And we've seen that. You read the book of Acts, you can't, you can't miss it. But the Holy Spirit also gave them power not just to recall, like remember, and communicate what Jesus said and what Jesus uh, did and were his words and actions. The Holy Spirit gave the apostles the authority to tell people what they, those words and actions meant. Like, what was the implication? When Jesus did this, when Jesus died on the cross, this is why that matters. This is how it ties into Scripture. This is why, when God said this back here, this is why it means here. And the apostles were the people that had the authority to do that. One of the ways I like to think about it is to say that the apostles were the last of the prophets. The thus saith the Lord's that you read in the Old Testament, the apostles were the last people that got to do that. So much so that, uh, as a result, they were the ones that either wrote or gave approval to what was written that eventually became the New Testament, okay? 
So it's safe to say that this is a heavy gig. To be an apostle, like, ooh, that is a big job with a big call. But when you, when you read the story of the apostles and all that God charged them with and told them to do, before they wrote scripture, God's first marching orders to them was not just to proclaim the gospel to the four corners of the earth, but to establish churches in that, those places. These community of Christian believers in an organized way, they would come together in this thing called the local church. In fact, the scriptures that, that you often see written, the one we're reading today, the Apostle Paul, most everything he written with the exception of, I, I think it's Philemon maybe, everything was written into a church, to a church that they had established. So it's safe to say if that was their first marching order, the local church, the church, it matters to God. It matters. And if that doesn't convince you, let me give you a different lens. If you ever want to find out what God values and what we should pay attention to, look for what Satan attacks the most viciously. You find what Satan goes after, and you will find very quickly that is something that God holds in very high esteem and close to his heart. When Paul, the Apostle Paul, that, we've been, that wrote this letter we're studying, he, uh, he was the big dog of going out and, and planting these churches in Gentile regions, which were non-Jewish places. And he'd go on these long missionary journeys and he took, one day he takes his friend Barnabas and they go to this city called Lystra. And it's this place in what would be modern day Turkey. And he walks in and he begins to proclaim the gospel. And there was a man there who could not walk. And the Holy Spirit through Paul, they healed him. And everybody there, because they were not Jewish people, they were uh, Greek Gentiles. Their minds were blown. And they looked at Paul and they looked at Barnabas and they go, you are Greek gods walking among us. And they called Barnabas, they're like, you're Zeus. They looked at Paul, they said, you're Hermes. Now, I'm not Paul or Barnabas, but they, that would be a very crazy experience. And you read in Scripture, it says they tore their cloaks. That's, a, that's an old te- or a, a biblical way of saying they lost their minds. They're like, no, don't do this, don't do this, you're missing the point. And the Jewish leaders came in, and they got so angry, and they stoned Paul. They stoned him till he was unconscious and they drug him outside of the city thinking he was dead and they left him outside of the gate. Now here's what's going on there. Satan knew what God was trying to do there. Satan knew that this church that Paul was trying to establish here, he knew that this would be a beachhead of the gospel in a dark world. So he attacked Paul because he wanted to stop the spread of the gospel. And if he was going to do that, he had to stop the church, period. He attacked the church. And Satan has not stopped attacking the church since. If you look at today, uh, when anyone wants to discredit Christianity, they're going to attack one of two things. The first thing they'll attack is scripture, the word of God. Because they know that if, if they can unravel scripture, the thing from which we get the thing, our truth, then the whole, 
the whole enchilada comes apart. And the second thing they'll attack is the church. And here's what they say, it's filled with hypocrites. The church is just filled with hypocrites. We talk about being loving, we talk about unity, but really behind the scenes we're really judgmental. We oppress people politically, socially. And Satan wants to discredit the church because to do so would discredit this vessel, this container that God has designed to carry the truth of the gospel we find in Scripture along to pass from generation to generation to pass from one to another. Now, Satan is evil, but he's not an idiot. And the reason that he chose this line of attack to call us hypocrites is because, to a large degree, it's true. And I'll just speak for myself. Because I know the hypocrisies of my heart. I know, I know I love God, but I also know I love myself. I know that when Paul writes in Romans 7, what he wrote about himself he, I, is true of me. For I have the desire to do what is right, but no ability to carry it out. For I do not do what I want, uh, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. That's true. That was true of Paul. It's true of me. The problem with that argument of attacking the church is what, he's, what they say and what's, what Satan pushes at and what people push at in that is not that they're wrong about me. They're wrong about the church. The entire reason that God created the church, or at least one of the reasons God created the church, was precisely because of my hypocrisies. I don't come to church. I don't do this because I'm not a hypocrite. I do this because I am one. I, I come into church and, the, and I realize that the point of the cross is not that I can be of one heart or that I am, I am good enough. I'm not. The point of the cross is I'm not, but that Jesus is and that he loves me. And that, yes, Romans 7 is true, but what Paul wrote next is true as well. When he wrote, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when I begin to metabolize that truth, when I can just breathe it in, that doesn't give me the, the, the freedom to wink at my hypocrisies. Yeah, I'm just, yeah, we're just broke, you know how we can do, but it gives me the freedom to admit them, and it gives me the freedom to push into them, and it gives me the freedom to engage them and to try and move through them and beyond them. When we come to church, it is an act of spiritual warfare for me to stand here among y'all and in my heart and in my head to let go of the illusion that, that the person standing next to me is not perfect that you are not your Instagram account, and to believe that. And also, it is an act of spiritual warfare for me to stop trying to make you think that I am, or you to make the other person think that you got it all together. See, the church matters to God because you matter to God, because I matter to God. 
people that comprise the church. And the church is where we embrace the cross and the forgiveness that sets us free from the guilt and the shame of these hypocrisies we're talking about. So I can walk in and I can experience the reality of a resurrected Jesus that calls hypocrites holy. That calls hypocrites righteous. That calls us plantings for the display of the Lord's splendor. Not once we've resolved our contradictions, but in the middle of them. And it's by walking in that that those things that we begin to display the gospel more in our life. That is huge. Let me tell you, it doesn't stop there. So going back to, what, to the story of Paul. So Paul, he goes to this church. You remember I told you he got left where we last left our superhero. He was lying on the ground. He's in Lystra. He gets up. He's not dead. Brushes off. His friends are like, you okay? And he goes in and he realizes that his trip was not a bust. In fact, lots and lots of people were converted there. And he planted and established a church while he was in Leicester, and he leaves. And he comes back a year later, and he meets this, this young boy, or this man, a young man, rather. And he was the son of this woman named Eunice and the grandson of this woman named Lois. And they had accepted Jesus on Paul's first trip there. And when he meets Timothy, they had, they had grown him in the faith. They had told him about Jesus. He had, he had accepted Jesus and had grown in the faith. He was really highly respected in the community of believers. And Paul's totally taken by this guy. And he says, hey, I got an idea. Why don't you come with me? So Timothy and Paul lock arms and they travel together. And they watch God move as he opens the doors for them to bring the gospel into places in the world that otherwise would have been unimaginable. And Paul and Timothy, they do life together. They're, they pray together. They celebrate together. They suffer together. They, they, they grow in the gospel together. And as a result of that, you read in the passage, the little, little intro we read today, in verse 2, they are, they are so bound together in, second, in the second verse Paul refers to Timothy, he says, my beloved child. He calls him my beloved child. So at this point, we get to 2 Timothy. Timothy is now pastoring his own church in Ephesus. And all, of, and all these people have infiltrated the church and they're teaching a message behind Timothy's back and sometimes probably right in his face that is twisting the message of the gospel. Now, we don't know what they were saying entirely, but here's what we do know about it. We know that they were saying that in order to be saved by Jesus or to walk and grow in faith, you had to eat a certain way or act a certain way or practice certain, relig uh, uh, certain religious uh, activities that to, to ensure your salvation. Or another way of saying that was Jesus' death on the cross it wasn't enough. It might have gotten you to the 70-yard line, but it's on you to punch it into the end zone. Now, as a result, all these camps were forming, and there was divisions in the church. And so during this time, Paul is in prison, and he's in Rome. All his friends have abandoned him. And he's, he knows that he's about to die. And one of his last things that he does is he begins to write a letter to, to Timothy, and his beloved son, and he tells him, Hold the line. Hold the doctrinal line against these false teachers. Why did he do that? Did he, it wasn't just because 
He loved good doctrine, though I'm sure he did. He knew that these false teachings would take people's eyes off of Jesus and they'd put them right on themselves. And he also knew that when that happened, they would lose sight of each other, which they were doing, and that's why the division was coming. And the reason that Paul wrote that is because he loved the church, and the reason he loved the church is because he loved the people that comprised the church. He knew the church was not supposed to be a place where people would go to learn how they could hang on to God. He knew that church was a place where people went to learn that God was the one hanging on to you and me and them. And he knew that the truth of the gospel, it would transform the heart of any individual. But he also knew that that truth of the gospel could only be ground into our hearts when we were not living individually. Where we had to move in relationship with one another in the context of the local church. So uh, one of the things that I love about what I do is I get to do a lot of weddings. It's fun. And as part of that, I do premarital counseling. And inevitably, especially the younger people that come in, They'll come in, they've got those cartoon birds flying around their head, and they got these hearts in their eyes, and, and I'm talking to them. I'm like, so tell me. Uh, I always like to ask, like, why are you getting married? And inevitably, they'll say, you know, I love her so much, or I love him so much. And that's true, and it's beautiful, and it's very sweet. But here's what I know. I know, and anyone that's been married for any length of time can attest to this. That I know that once they get in, into marriage, there's going to come a day where the person they're married to is going to look at them and say, I'm a sinner, or see that he's a sinner, or she's a sinner. And those cartoon birds fly out the window. But there's this beautiful moment that that's where the trials and the, the difficulties and the joys and the sorrows, the, all of the, the thing that comprises a marriage that Satan would use to divide two people, that God comes in and teaches this selfless kind of grace, love marked by grace that creates this unity. There's a, there's a quote that I use in every wedding I've ever done, and I stole it from Russ a while ago, and I'll paraphrase it. It was a Puritan quote, and it says, you don't get married because you fall in love. You get married to fall in love. The idea is that marriage is this ecosystem that God established where those trials and hardships that God uses to bring them together, to bring them into one, to unify, to, to, to live out the spiritual reality of them becoming one thing. When you read Ephesians 5, uh, God makes the analogy that the church is the bride of Christ. You've heard this before. And like in marriage, uh, when we come to church, oftentimes we come to church for the first time because we have fallen in love with Jesus. Even if you grew up in the church, there's this point where you have to make the decision, is this what I'm going to do? And you choose to come because you've fallen in love with Jesus. And that is real and that is good. But in time... We don't come to church 
because we fall in love with Jesus, we come to church to fall more deeply in love with Jesus. Just like marriage, it's, it's, it's where we experience the love and the grace of Jesus. Why do, why do we need the church to do that? Paul and Timothy, what they were to each other. It's a picture of what we are to be to one another. People that go on this journey together, that we, when we, we step into the live fire exercises of life, in sickness and in health, in the joys and the hard things, as we worship together, we pray together, share meals together, we cry together with grace and love, like in marriage, like with Timothy and Paul, we become bound together. It's God's provision. It's the, it's the arena in which we go on this journey because he knows that's how we appropriate, we are transformed, and that truth is digested into our hearts. It's the way that we realize that, that we are God's beloved sons and daughters, and that's the way that we become beloved to one another. So church, it matters. It does. It matters to God. In fact, the church is priceless to God. And the reason the church is priceless to God is because you are priceless to God. And that is a beautiful thing. And let us lift our eyes so that we can, for the next six weeks, we can lean further in and say, hey, what is it that it, to walk on this journey together as the church? Okay? Amen. Let me pray. Lord, uh, thank you for these people. Thank you for the priceless gift of the church. And thank you, Lord, that this gift of the church is priceless because you, we are a priceless gift to you. And that is hard, I confess, for me to digest. Lord, I pray that, that cool, or Christ Pres Cool Springs becomes the place that years from now when people talk about the church of their childhood and memories flood in and smells and good things. Lord, I pray that this, this church provides that. Lord, you're good, you are real, and we thank you. I pray you move uh, just to burn this truth into our hearts. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Billy. I love you, man. All right. Well, we're going to.